If you've turned on cable news recently, picked up a newspaper, panic over the Democratic primary process. It has been hard to avoid. Yeah. So what what exactly are you afraid of? I'm afraid that Donald Trump is going to get reelected and I have to do this for four more years. And I don't think we can make it. I really don't look at the way people in this country are talking. With Bernie Sanders in the lead going into South Carolina, you can feel some political commentators reaching around for the emergency break. People like James Carville and Rahm Emanuel. They can look a little wide-eyed, sound a little hyperbolic. I think it's a little late to stop them, and I think that's the problem. Like, this is Chris Matthews after the Nevada caucuses. He compared the Sanders surge to the Nazis taking over France. And yeah, he apologized for this later. But still, I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is Yeah, I mean, my favorite headline was in New York Magazine. Like, if Democrats aren't terrified of Bernie, they're not paying attention. Which is like, ooh, deep breath. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think people are trying to figure out our concept of what's electable, our concept of what would be disqualifying to voters. How strong is our sense of that? Steve Kornacki. You can find him on MSNBC, too. But... He's off in the corner with a giant touchscreen on election night, trying to make sense of all the numbers. He says that this anxiety, it really stems from the fact that no one actually knows what's happening here. I mean, is that different than previous years for you? Like previous election years, you'd be like, yeah, I think I think I got this. I think I know what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think we went through a period in, in sort of presidential politics of, of several decades where it, it felt like it was becoming predictable. There was this whole theory that this political science theory that basically held there's a, a sort of a broad network of influential people in a political party, whether they are elected officials or they're activists, interest groups, you know, they're all very influential and they sort of informally coordinate with each other, kind of figure out who they want the nominee to be. And the, the, the candidate who gets the most support from the influencers, it, it trickles down to the voters. And, and then the voters kind of follow suit in the primaries. And Donald Trump, he just systematically in that primary campaign blew up that entire theory of how these nominations um, are decided. All of these folks who are so thrown by Bernie Sanders right now, until the last couple of election cycles, they felt like they understood the political world. And now, like the rest of us, they're trying to figure out what comes next. And I think if Sanders is the nominee, a lot of those assumptions and a lot of those sort of a lot of that thinking is almost going to be a real time experiment to see to see what was really there with it. Today on the show, Steve and I are going to take all this Bernie anxiety that's filling up airtime and question it a bit, because if 2016 really did mark a shift in the way elections work, looking back at Trump's rise could offer some clues about Sanders' future. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. To understand the odd position Bernie Sanders is in right now, Steve says it helps to look at two areas of polling. The first is how voters feel about Bernie himself. The second is how they feel about some of his ideas. You know, the, the socialist label, you know, we, we had an NBC Wall Street Journal poll, you know, a week or so ago, and, and the label of socialism, it made Democrats, Democratic voters very nervous, very apprehensive. It seems from the polling that there's some of the distinct ideological positions that Sanders takes would suggest unpopularity, and yet Sanders as a character, Sanders as a personality, Sanders as a political entity, you know, on his own um, is much more popular. You know, if you take a poll of Democratic voters, um, last one I looked at, favorable, unfavorable score, you know, Sanders was like 72 to 15, something like that, 72% favorable, 15% unfavorable, something right around there. Those are numbers that are at least as as strong as, as his opponents, better than most of them, maybe all of them. Um, so he's very personally popular, personally liked by Democrats. But yes, on, on some of those policy things that he's on shakier ground. When you put your finger on something important, which is that label, that socialist right. label kind of sets people off. I think you can see it sort of materializing in this really concrete way when you look at how Democratic politicians are talking about down ballot races and how a Bernie Sanders candidacy might impact them down ballot. Like last week, you saw an ad come out in this campaign in Arizona, Martha McSally, a Republican, and, you know, she's going against Mark Kelly, the astronaut, and she put out an ad where she basically said that Mark Kelly is a Bernie bro, not because of necessarily anything Mark Kelly has said other than I would support whoever the candidate is for president even if it's Bernie Sanders. Now Kelly says he would support Bernie Sanders. $60 trillion in new spending. Taxpayer-funded health care for illegal immigrants. 
the story of the last few years, let's say the Trump era, it goes back farther, but it's really accelerated in the Trump era. The story for the Democratic Party has been making gains in the traditionally Republican suburbs, places like, you know, right around Phoenix um, in Arizona, but, but metro areas all around the country, traditionally Republican suburbanites who perhaps fiscally are more moderate, conservative, but on sort of cultural grounds, they have strong objections to Donald Trump. They have strong objections to the Republican Party of Donald Trump. And they voted for Democrats um, very strongly in 2018. And Democrats have been counting on um, that continuing uh, in 2020. The fear that you're hearing from uh, from Democrats, a certain type of Democrat, is that Bernie Sanders, more than anybody else, would jeopardize that particular inroad that Democrats have been making because you would you would be confronting these new Democratic voters with a dilemma where on economic grounds suddenly they've got someone you know who is calling himself a socialist who again traditionally was utterly totally completely unmarketable in the suburbs and suddenly you're saying you got to vote for a socialist fiscally conservative suburbanite because it's that important to take out Donald Trump and the fear that that you're hearing from some Democrats is you know Bernie Sanders will force a lot of those folks who crossed over and voted for Democrats in 2018 to say, eh, I don't like Trump, but I don't like socialism even more. Um, that's the fear you're hearing. Can we interrogate that fear a little bit? Like, I'm wondering if we can look back at the past few years and look at how those same voters have responded to AOC, for instance, who's been used in a similar way and say, this is why that fear is reasonable or why that fear maybe isn't reasonable. Yeah, I think AOC in particular is tough to judge only because she came on the scene, you know, she won in 2018. So she's sort of um, become a national figure 2019, 2020. There hasn't we haven't gone through a full election cycle. But if the fear of the Democratic establishment is that Bernie Sanders um, is going to take down all these Democrats down ballot, here's the counter to that based on the last few years. It's what happened in October of 2016. Quickly to some breaking news about Donald Trump. A decade-old audio tape surfacing late today in which Trump is heard making crude and vulgar comments about women, including how he gropes them. You know, I remember we had a poll in the field as this was happening. Um, overnight, he fell double digits behind Hillary Clinton. This was thought to be an absolute political killer. This this new Access Hollywood tape on top of everything else that Donald Trump had put them through in 2016 was going to be politically toxic. Even close advisors are admitting that this is devastating. One calling his remarks flat out appalling and telling CNN that they don't know if Trump can recover. And Republican Speaker of the House at the time, Paul Ryan, remember, Republicans were trying to protect a House majority in 2016 with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Paul Ryan held an emergency conference call with his Republican members, with the Republicans who were trying to win re-election on the ballot with Donald Trump. And he told them weeks before the 2016 election to cut Donald Trump loose. That Donald Trump, if they didn't, Donald Trump was going to take them down. They had to separate themselves from him. They had to save themselves. They had to try to save themselves. But otherwise, Donald Trump was going to take them down. And of course, several weeks later, Donald Trump basically didn't take them down. Donald Trump was elected (laughs) president of the United States. And the Republicans held up far better in those exact seats that Paul Ryan was worried about. They held up far better. And I think that's the counter. You know, Democrats... Um, the, the fear there is, is I, I outlined it. I think it's, it's a completely understandable fear. And, and if Sanders is nominated, that fear may well be valid.
validated. But I think the Trump example has to make you sit there and say, maybe it wouldn't go the way you assume it would. Yeah, it's interesting because we talked about this sort of socialism fear and, and how it could be used as a cudgel. But I feel like there's also this kind of hard data fear because Bernie Sanders' campaign is based on this idea that he's going to turn out a new kind of electorate, more people, different people. And I wonder if we can look back at how the races have gone and sort of ask, has that happened? Yeah, there's no obvious gigantic surge in the first three. There's no obvious gigantic surge in Democratic turnout that you could clearly attribute to the kind of effect Sanders is is saying he'll generate. The turnout in Iowa for the caucuses was, I think, 176,000. In 2016, in the Clinton-Sanders race, it was about 171,000. So it it was up very slightly. It was basically flat with 2016, and, and it was significantly lower than in 2008. 2008 was kind of the all-time, at this point, the all-time high-water mark for Democratic interest in a uh, in a presidential primary. So it was it was down significantly from that this time around. In, in New Hampshire, I should say, turnout actually exceeded 2016 and 2008 levels in New Hampshire. Um, but that comes with an asterisk. It comes with a catch. It looks like when you start looking at where the turnout sort of was up in in, uh, in New Hampshire, you didn't see it in, in the kinds of ways Sanders and his campaign describe it. And then you go out to Nevada and, you know, the turnout was, it looks like it will end up being up over 2016, but again, well short of that, you know, 2008 high watermark. It's hard to know what turnout in these early races might mean for the general election. So Steve looked back at what happened when Trump ran for president in 2016. When I looked closely at Iowa, I was looking at the counties of Iowa in advance of the the caucuses a couple weeks ago. And the amazing thing is Iowa, more than any other state, Iowa had a more dramatic shift between 2012 and 2016 in the general election. You know, you talk about the Obama-Trump voters. There were like a third of Iowa's counties went Obama, (laughs) Obama, Trump. Um, Yeah, I noticed that, too. More counties went blue to red there than anywhere else. And the amazing thing is, if you looked back at the 2016 caucus results in both the Democratic and Republican side in Iowa, you had no indication that that was going to happen in the fall. The places where Hillary Clinton was running, you know, 30, 40 points worse than Barack Obama did, a lot of those cases, she was winning over Bernie Sanders in the caucuses. And the places where Trump ended up outperforming Mitt Romney by 30, 40 points in the general election, he was often losing, sometimes to Marco Rubio, sometimes to Ted Cruz. And I, it, was, it, was, it was kind of amazing to me to look back at that, at that caucus map, knowing what was going to happen in the general election and knowing that Iowa was going to move toward Trump more dramatically pretty much than any other state. Um, and yet, if you looked at those caucus results for signs of what was going to happen in the general election, you would have been severely misled. Hmm. So I guess you're saying a lot could happen between now and then. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's this tendency. We want to read from primaries because it's the only thing we have in front of us in terms of real results. We want to read from primaries and to see this candidate is is this candidate has won this state's primary and therefore um, shows they can win it in the general election. I think that's a very dubious jump to make. Um, I, I mean, I'm remembering it, you know, I just date myself here. I can remember from 2008 when Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama um, and, and Clinton was, was running from behind in those primaries and she was trying to make the case that Democrats should nominate her anyway. She was saying her argument was, look, I won Pennsylvania, 
I won Ohio. I won swing states. I won big, important swing states that you have to win in the general election. I've proven that there's this, she, I remember her campaign was saying there's this white working class base that will not vote for Barack Obama, that will vote. Well, Obama carried Pennsylvania easily. He carried Ohio <laughs> easily. And, 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 the, and the voters who propelled him to victory in those states became the Obama, Obama, Trump voters we're talking about now. So, I mean, the, the history of reading from primary results to general election in states is very dicey. There's something else that political pollsters like Steve have their eye on when it comes to Sanders' electability. It's about how he's motivating young voters and just how many of them will need to turn out in order to deliver Sanders a victory in November. In an article published in Vox recently, a couple of political professors said that turnout would have to be remarkable. It claimed to show that in order for Sanders to win, he would need a 30 percent boost in youth turnout from 2016, which just it seems like a lot. It seems like a wish, like a dream. So I I have to say, I I have not seen that, actually. But my immediate reaction is to be skeptical of, of of, of a conclusion that emphatic because I remember a number of conclusions like that with Donald Trump in 2016. I remember there was this conclusion that Republicans had to find a way to get 40 percent of the Hispanic vote. That was, you know, 35, 40 percent of the Hispanic vote or they were going to be doomed in every election going forward. And and Donald Trump um, did not come close to that and and yet got elected in one states like Florida that he wasn't supposed to be able um, to win. I, I mean, Trump showed you can get elected by voters who think very poorly of you. You know, if you looked at people in 2016 who said they they said you had voters, a lot of them, millions of them who said on Election Day, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump tells the truth. I don't think Donald Trump has the temperament to be president. I don't think Donald Trump is qualified to be president. I do think Hillary Clinton is qualified to be president. I do think Hillary Clinton has the temperament to be president, and I am voting for Donald Trump. When Steve compares Donald Trump's rise in 2016 to Bernie Sanders now, there is one last thing he's looking at, the bandwagon effect. Trump won in part because he captured a broad swath of Republicans and moderates. His support snowballed. He didn't look at any particular demographic group and say, oh, there's the big block of Republicans who just don't like this guy, who just won't vote for this guy. You saw him doing really well with Tea Party voters. You saw him doing well with self-described moderates. With college educated, he did decent. With non-college, he did much better, but he wasn't getting blown out with college educated. You saw him doing good with young voters, great with older voters. You didn't see, you know, a huge drop off anywhere. And that's the one difference when I look at Sanders, I see a huge drop off for Sanders when you start working your way up the age scale. And there are a lot of Democratic voters over 45, over 50, over 65, um, and they seem to read Sanders very differently than younger voters. I think that's about how people perceive a a political character like Bernie Sanders, the label socialism and the politics that come with him. Because I think if you're over 45 years old or you're somewhere in that area, you have a memory of the Cold War. You have a memory of, of people like Bernie Sanders in American politics from that period. And you remember them being fringe characters. You remember them being largely unelectable. You probably lumped them in. If you're of a certain age, you probably lumped them in automatically with George McGovern, you know, who got nominated sort of as an insurgent in 19. 
1972 by the Democratic Party at the height of the Vietnam War and then lost all but Massachusetts in the general election to Richard Nixon and didn't even crack 40 percent of the national popular vote. I think even if you like Bernie Sanders, you have a sort of formative memory of Cold War politics and you read him as a really risky electoral proposition. And I think that does raise the question to me of whether there is a critical block of Democrats, white, non-white, you know, moderate, liberal, but older, generally older, not all, but generally older, that look at Sanders and have a lot more reservations um, and perhaps ultimately unwillingness to to vote for him to be the nominee um, than younger Democrats. Well, it sounds like when you look at South Carolina and Super Tuesday, you're looking to see if any of these groups of voters starts tapping the brakes. Exactly. Exactly. And in South Carolina, that would be, if it happens, that'd be especially older African-American voters, just a huge component of the electorate there. And again, on Super Tuesday, um, I mean, it's also the overall question. You look at all these different states, Virginia, North Carolina, Arkansas. It, it is, if Sanders is coming in about 20 percent in these states, I think that's very different than if he's getting 30, 35, 40 percent, because that's the leap that Trump made in 2016 after he started winning the early contests. When you got to the bigger states, when you got to the big regional primaries, Trump was moving up and getting well into the 30s, even breaking 40 percent, that kind of thing. He was it was showing that he was growing his coalition. If we're here sitting here on Super Tuesday and Sanders is, you know, very low 20s, if he's even in the teens, anything like that, if there's signs in these states that 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 bandwagon effect has just not set in despite his winning early, I'd really be, I think you're really looking at the possibility of a ceiling there, um, probably imposed by age. Steve Kornacki, thank you so much for joining me. Excellent. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Steve Kornacki is a national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He's also the author of the book, The Red and the Blue. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Mara Silvers. Tomorrow, Lizzie O'Leary will be here with an episode of What Next TBD. I'm Mary Harris, and I will talk to you next week.